Isaiah 59, starting with verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my house. Who are these like a fl- that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord, your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. These nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. 
Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Many sermons and sections of commentaries on this passage from Isaiah begin the same way. They begin with a list of things that demonstrate how broken our world is right now. I could list headlines that make the point. I could list things that have happened over the last few years to people in this room. But y'all don't need that, do you? You know all too well the impacts of sin and brokenness. So does Isaiah. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth is stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. You know, we can think of a lot of things that make Judah's time in exile quite different from the times in which we live. But when you hear that, it all seems familiar enough, doesn't it? Justice turned back, truth stumbled. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Because some of this remains in our own hearts. The last couple weeks, we've talked about our need for revival. How by Christ's redemption and the Spirit's ongoing work, that's the part of the problem we can do something about. We can improve this world in which we live for ourselves and for others by walking with God. We can keep justice and do righteousness. We can honor the Sabbath and turn our feet back from going our own way. We can make our witness an appealing one to those around us. We can do business to the glory of God. And when we do, temporarily and in part, the world that is to come breaks through into this world. And life, this life, is better that way. But what even that does not do, what we cannot do, is to turn this world into that world. Even if every one of us, even if every Christian lived like Christ, we would still be in a world of rebellion and sin, and therefore a world of hardship and pain. The world resists his righteousness. The relationship between the church and the world is not and cannot be peaceful. The rulers of the earth scheme against the Lord and his anointed. Isaiah knows that. And this morning, he tells us that God knows that too. Verse 15, the Lord saw it 
and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Christians, God is not blind. He is not unaware of our hardship and our suffering. He hasn't missed the impact of sin on our world and on the lives of his people. He's not pretending that everything is okay. I say that because I do wonder if sometimes we live as though he has missed something. Sometimes we go through life thinking that we're the ones pretending that he hasn't missed it. I wonder when Satan tempts us to despair, if the first thing we're not tempted to believe is that God doesn't see. I wonder when we're hurt deeply again by someone else's sin, what we're imagining God's response to be. Does he see? Does he care? Does he intervene? Until he takes us home, or until he comes in glory, we will go on living in this sin-stained world. And what we do, justice and righteousness, can make things better. But we will still have to wrestle with and suffer from the difficulties that are not of our own doing. This morning, I'd like for us to consider that what we think and how we feel about even those things can have an equally powerful effect in our lives. That our response should follow from God's. God's is in verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Yes, our world is dark. In various In all too personal times and waves, our own lives are dark. But God intervenes. And in doing so, he tells us not to despair. He calls us to see even now what will be. He invites us to hope. One pastor said that this morning's passage carries us out of today's world of fanatical terrorists and dysfunctional schools and inoperable cancer and broken promises into a world, a future age of worldwide happiness in Christ. And therefore, another concluded, we ought not to despair. For even if we receive no human help, God is quite sufficient for himself. It's really bad. Verse 14 highlights four concepts that are central to God's own nature and to his creation, all of which we have corrupted in the fall, all of which cause us pain nearly every day. Justice turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled. Uprightness cannot enter. This is the before. This is the condition in which God finds us after the fall. This is the result of our rebellion, our idolatry, 
our insistence upon going our own way instead of God's. Isaiah is describing the experience and the behavior of every person who has ever lived. Because of sin, this is where we are. And in many ways, the world in which we live still resembles this before. Isaiah's point is that how we live in this world need not resemble how it was before. Because God has intervened. God saw, God sees now the wickedness of man in this before, yet he does not write us off forever. He put on his war clothes, verses 17 through 19. He dresses himself to go out and do battle against his enemies. God will intervene. And now dressed for battle, we come to verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn away from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Most scholars call this the pivot of the passage. One writes, the structure of the passage pivots on God's covenant with us. It's the difference between the world as it was before and the world of God's promise. His covenant is the pivot point. Even the indenting of your Bible probably draws attention to this. Verse 21 switches from poetry to prose. And Isaiah emphasizes it with bookends of the phrase, says the Lord. Everything he can do in the text to draw attention cries out that this covenant changes everything. Does it for you? God tells us both what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. The what? He will make us partakers of his glory. We will be a light to the nations, drawing others to him. He will change reality for our good. He will bring us joy through perseverance. How? He will give us his spirit and his words. That's what it says, his spirit and his words. Into a world where truth is lacking, God sends his word. And to give us ears to hear and minds to understand, he sends his spirit. Many of you children have been learning the Heidelberg Catechism. We adults are going to work through it together soon as well. Catechisms are valuable. It's why we literally pay the children to memorize the catechism. Why would we do that? It's because we think it's valuable. Because life convinces us to forget what's true. Life convinces us to forget what's true. Hardship and sorrow and suffering are great at reminding us about the before condition of this world and our lives in darkness. It's only God's words 
and summaries like the creeds and the catechisms that remind us of his intervention and the after that we've been promised. We don't need any help remembering the darkness, but we need all the help we can get remembering the promise. And so the authors of the Heidelberg got Isaiah's point about word and spirit. And in question 54, they're working through the phrases of the Apostles' Creed, and they ask, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? And the answer is, I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church for everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a member of it. You see, when life tempts you to despair, it's words like these that can help us think and feel something that is even more true than our circumstances. How does Christ gather, defend, and preserve you in the unity of true faith? How does God persevere you through the onslaught and potential overwhelm of the darkness of this world? It's like Isaiah says, his words and spirit. Isaiah was even saying more than he knew because there's Christ in this picture in Isaiah. To find him, you need to look at the pronouns. In verse 21, God says, this is my covenant with them. Them is easy to figure out. It's his people. Verse 20, those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Those who are in covenant with God turn to him in repentance and faith. The covenant is with them. That's easy enough. But after that, the pronouns change, don't they? My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth. It's now not them, but you. Now, there's another you at the beginning of chapter 60. That you is feminine and clearly refers to Israel. But this you in verse 21 is masculine and clearly does not. What's going on here? Here's how one commentary explains it. Out of the blue, we're overhearing a conversation. We're overhearing God promising to give an unidentified someone his word and spirit forever for the benefit of repentant people. Who is that person? He's the figure Isaiah has already portrayed to us, the servant of the Lord. In verse 21, the father is pledging to his son how he is going to bless us through him. God sees what's happening in this world of hardship. And he promises help and blessing for his people through his son. We suffer But we do not suffer while God is unaware or indifferent. We suffer in the context of God having already intervened to give us all we need for the trials. We don't have to play pretend. But we also don't need to feel discouraged as if this is more than we can bear. 
We don't have to be frustrated or bitter as if these things are coming in our lives to do us ill rather than good. What we should do, what can change what we think and how we feel is to prioritize what he's given us, word and spirit. This is no small thing. And if you think it's small, you're not getting it. The Father has covenanted with the Son to gather, defend, and preserve you in the unity of truth by his words and spirit. He has promised that the darkness will never overtake you. He's not promised that to you first. He's promised it to his Son first. That the darkness will not overtake you. And the light that you have is the light that he has given. Maybe you think you are prioritizing word and spirit. Maybe you actually are. But you should know that the world before, the world of darkness, the pain of our circumstances, is always trying to speak more loudly In the flesh, lies are the things that we don't have to work hard to believe. We're not very skeptical of Satan's lies, you guys. And so taking honest account of the role God's words and spirit play in our lives, that can be a valuable exercise. Just do a gut check. Am I living, am I thinking and feeling as though these words And this spirit are as important as God says they are. Where do his words rank in my life when stacked up against everything else? Measure just the volume that you consume each week. How many words? Is your life filled with more of his words or more news stories and fiction and Instagram feeds? Kids, which is more likely to influence your behavior? His words or how your friends behave and what you think your friends expect of you. All of us, where do we turn when facing disappointments and pain? Is it his words or anything else? My goal isn't to guilt trip you into spending more time in scripture. My goal is to ask you to consider the effect of which tools are most dominant in your life. Life is hard. Life is dark. And it is harder, impossibly hard, if you are trying to live with this pain apart from constant use of the tools he's given us. He promises that we will persevere, but he promises that we will persevere through the use of the words and the spirit that he sends. We need his words and his spirit to both know and to Feel what is true. Because our circumstances will not tell us this story. For the story is verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory 
will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Your circumstances aren't going to tell you that truth. This is the truth of the after. The new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth that God has secured for us in Christ. And not just that God has made this to be, but that the world, as we just prayed in our corporate prayer, the world will see his glory in us and respond by lavishing its blessings on us as it worships him. The world that was before covered in darkness. Yes, we feel that darkness. It affects us now still. But when we see it, when we feel it, we can also remember and feel that God has arisen and that his glory has arisen upon us. We can remember and we can feel the glory of Christ establishing truth and righteousness. We can remember and feel that there will be peace between the world and the church because God's promise will be fulfilled and behold all things made new. Isaiah says that false religions... The ones that bring darkness and deception in our world will fall away. Isaiah says that idolatry, these these idols that keep people chasing after not gods rather than God for security and satisfaction, they will fall away. Isaiah says people all over the world will see Christ for who he is and respond in kind. And Isaiah says that this is our bright future because God has gloriously intervened with word and spirit. Our suffering hasn't stopped yet. But isn't even suffering different? Not good, but isn't even suffering different? Different. What we think and how we feel about suffering are different when by God's word and spirit we know that he is intervening. Peter wrote, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I know it's hard. Peter doesn't say it's easy. He just says that by his word and spirit, it's doable. And that if we don't think we can, we're forgetting, we're denying, we're failing to use the word and the spirit that he's given. Paul told us that all things are ours, whether the present or the future. I've heard the phrase that our lives are right now rich in what will be. And so by his word and spirit, we can live as though that's true. Because it is true. We've talked about revival these last few weeks and the need for revival in our hearts and in our church and in the world. But as another teacher put it, revival is more than just the awakening of a church. It's the future of the world. Because God has decreed it, it's certain. It's the future of 
the world. And so Christians, even when the remnants of the before bring us pain and toil, we can live differently in them. The world is darkness and we will experience that darkness every day, but we don't have to choose to walk in darkness. For arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 